Welcome back to Women in Sport, the podcast, aka Wins. I have a, another fantastic guest with me today, and that is Laura Ashworth Cape, who is the head of legal at Fanatic. I will pass over to Laura now and uh, take it away, Laura. Thanks very much. Yeah, so as mentioned, my name's Laura. I'm working as head of legal at Fanatic, which is a global esports brand um, competing in a range of titles at the top level globally. Before starting at Fanatic, I was at the Arsenal Football Club for four years in quite a generalist role. Um, and that's the extent, I suppose, of my relevant previous sporting experience, because there's certainly no personal prowess to talk to. So <laughs> I could that's stop so there. <laughs> no, I'm... I mean, super, super useful, um, regardless of lack of sporting <laughs> prowess. And I guess um, it'd be really helpful if you could just, you know, talk through your connection to sport through your role at Fanatic and maybe give the audience a bit of an overview of your role. Sure. So, as mentioned, we're an e-sport organisation, which means we have pro players competing in a range of different titles, um, which is a bit like being an organisation that has... Uh, a netball team, a football team, a basketball team, like each title is is very distinct. And actually the only title we're in that resembles a traditional sport is FIFA. Um, So football, obviously. Uh, The rest are kind of shooter, shooter games, battle royale, kind of arena type um, situations. So um, it's a sporting organisation and the work naturally, therefore, is very similar in many respects, actually, to when I was at Arsenal. We have a lot of work on the player side in terms of contracting and league rules and regulations. We deal with agents, regulatory issues yeah. that are unique to sport, including safeguarding, integrity issues, that type of thing. Um, <clears throat> on the commercial side, the work is very much focused on things like sponsorship deals. Fanatic has some big name sponsors now and historically. So the likes of Crypto.com, ASOS, mm-hmm. um, BMW, etc., Gucci even. <laughs> There's a lot of marketing advice as well. And obviously we're very active online on social media in that respect. So we work with creators who are essentially streamers and influencers, yeah. um, very present on all the main channels of social media. Uh what else are we doing? Um, there's a lot of regulatory issues that come up that are quite interesting, also partly because of our audience being quite young and online. Um, so we've got to be conscious, obviously, of what we promote and how, especially if it's age restricted. Uh, we launched an NFT membership program last year. So bizarrely, I know a reasonable amount about crypto rules and regulations. Um, and on the employment side, actually, quite a lot because we're a global organization, quite remote as well, by and large. Um, so, yeah, a, a raft of kind of global mobility and associated considerations with that. Yeah, I mean, that all sounds really cool. And I guess um, you just briefly touched on your role at Arsenal. I just wondered if you could, you know, just explain a bit about how you came to sport law and yeah. how you, you know, came across it, essentially. Sure. Um, absolutely. I'm... A really annoying person who stumbled into it without ever having an objective <laughs> to 
work in it. So I'm very conscious of how lucky I am. Um, essentially what happened was I took a year off from my job in New Zealand, came over to London and did a master's at the LSE in law and happened to graduate from that at a time where everyone was desperate for data protection lawyers because the GDPR was coming in. Um, I knew I didn't want to go back to New Zealand quite yet, was really enjoying my time in London and was just very lucky that I spoke to a recruiter who essentially recruited the entire in-house legal department at Arsenal and knew they needed a data lawyer. Um, so that was my in. And then in that role, because it involved me doing essentially a really comprehensive review of the club from its commercial to its player to its operational departments um, and how they handle data, which is obviously central to the success of a sports org, whether it's team performance, um, understanding fan insights, etc., um, as a result of that, I, I got a wonderful understanding of, of the organization as a whole and very useful um, insights that led to me having a general in-house role there, uh, looking after the retail teams. Oh, God, trying to remember what I did at Arsenal. Retail, <laughs> ticketing, pe- uh, people. Um, oh, Gosh, it was it was about it was a big range operational IT, etc. So, yeah, again, really broad kind of remit, which was great. And um, I guess, you know, Arsenal versus Fnatic are quite very different organisations, I guess, in, in one respect. I wondered if you could just tell us a bit, um, or we could explore together, just the business case behind gaming more generally. Because for a lot of people, I guess, uh, gaming itself as a sport is quite different to what we perceive as, you know, the regular or typical sports. Yeah, sure. Um, so it's probably helpful for me. To at this point, explain where esports fits into the gaming ecosystem somewhat, and then I'll I'll talk to the business model, I suppose, a little bit for an esports organisation. So, um, <clears throat> gaming is an umbrella term, obviously, for just kind of playing games, and there's something like three billion people worldwide who play games, which is Smart. crazy. Um, there's then over 900 million people who enjoy watching games. And like watching other people play games. <clears throat> um, and about 500 million people then support esports teams. So the teams that competitively engage in gaming. Um, and then if we're talking then about the kind of business model for an esports team specifically, which is different to, let's say, the business model for a gaming publisher like Riot. Um, yeah. For us, Fnatic, our key revenue streams are, uh, when it comes to gaming itself, prize money and revenue shares from certain leagues. Um, mm-hmm. The main revenue stream for us is partnership deals, uh, and it is a it's a constrained market on that front at the moment with the economic downturn. Uh, we also, and I think we're rather unique in this, sell physical gaming products, so performance gaming products. Um, and also apparel, I do apparel drops occasionally. <clears throat> and on top of that, we're increasingly um, seeing revenue come in from digital st- revenue streams like the sale of in-game items and things like that. Um, what I will say is we are kind of looking to try and establish new revenue streams, particularly by 
establishing a more direct connection with our fans, one which kind of doesn't rely on an intermediary like a social media platform or a publisher, um, and also at ways to widen our fan base. So examples of those things are the NFT membership program I mentioned last year. So if you are one of our key holders, which is, you know, an NFT on the blockchain, you yeah. are a lifetime member for as long as you hold that NFT, although I don't worry, I did tell the team we can't say it's forever and ever and ever. Um, <laughs> uh, and every year you'll get physical products um, as part of your membership. So it's essentially like a long-term subscription, but in a way that you kind of own and could trade, which I thought okay. was really cool. Um, we also launched a lo-fi radio album online, which was a, a fun way to kind of just be front of mind with fans, I think, in a way that they wouldn't have thought yeah. about before. So, like, while you're gaming, having having that on. And it's, the, the, the tracks are great. I would encourage you to kind of take a listen. You'll have to send uh, it to me after. <laughs> I will, yeah. It's got a great um, animation that goes along with it, actually. Like that. It's good to look at. Um, we also launched an app very recently. So this is just to give you a sense, I suppose, of ways we're trying to establish that direct connection. Yeah. With fans more so. And... And then growing the fan base, the real challenge for esports is that games, unlike traditional sports, are really hard to understand and be enthused about in large part if you don't play the game itself. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it's completely baffling to me watching some of the titles they were in because I don't play them. Um, but I'm surrounded by people who incredibly passionately engaged in what they see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so that's the challenge, I think, bringing in more people to enjoy gaming. Um, and and I think there's a really interesting example, actually, with women's football and the success that they've had there in terms of attracting a whole new audience that yeah. wasn't following them previously. And, and it seems like early indications are um, encouraging them to stick around even beyond the immediate kind of hype, which follows a successful result, you know? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. So um, we're very big on hype in esports. It's, it's a, definitely a thing. Um, how do we convert that to like long-term fandom that you then eventually can kind of, you know, it sounds awful to say, but monetize in a meaningful way? Yeah, I mean, that that will make sense. And I, I guess, yeah, just picking up on on that football point, I've I've had a lot of people come to me and just say, you know, that they've gone to watch a game for the first time and have loved it and are going to continue going back, but they've never watched football before. Um, And, you know, I I just love, I love that. So I I completely understand the hype aspect to it. Um, And I I guess one of the stark contrasts between, you know, the the regular sports uh, like football in one way and the gaming industry is, you know, there aren't necessarily the same considerations, say, around event attendance and, I guess, media rights, which you've kind of picked up on. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So the key difference is, as you say, we don't get broadcast licensing revenues from yeah. streaming. So people, getting back to basics, I suppose, um, people watch esports online, it's streamed, yeah. and that's for free. So despite the fact that there are huge numbers of people that watch esports matches at any one time, and the tens of millions is not uncommon, that is not, you know, monetized by yeah. us as an esports team. 
Um, and yes, you can attend esports events, live events, and it's again not uncommon for tens of thousands of people to do so. But you know, unlike a football club, an esports team doesn't own the venue, so we don't receive the ticketing revenues from event attendance either. Yeah, that, I mean that makes sense from my side. And I, I guess um, taking it from a from a gender perspective or a gender competitive perspective, gaming is something in my mind that can be quite neutral. I guess from a, from a gender perspective, so. You know, you're sitting in a chair, essentially gaming, um, competing against others. That's a very basic understanding of <laughs> gaming competitions. But and and I just wondered, like, would you say that's correct from a from a competition angle? Yeah, I mean, my understanding is there is absolutely no reason why you would be inherently advantaged based on your gender in terms of competitive gaming. So that's what makes it quite fascinating as well and there aren't any you know rules that I'm aware of in any of the titles we're in which would say you would have to be an all-male team either so in theory it could be completely diverse um like what an amazing potential utopia right yeah exactly (laughs) sounds great (laughs) yeah um what's happening as well is there's been a launch so I suppose the fact that we don't have competitive female players to the same extent is notable and interesting therefore and it's a result of the fact that historically games have been played or perceived as more acceptable to play I suppose um, by men and so we just don't have the pipeline of women at that pro level yet ready to play Um, but there are moves in the space and Riot for example recently um, Ish launched a new female Valorant league called Game Changers which we are super supportive of the same has happened in other titles um, as well uh, what's interesting is those, well the Riot ones specifically Game Changers, they've been very public and I can see the merit in this in saying this is with an eye to getting these players into the norm, you know, quote unquote normal leagues and playing alongside yeah. the men. Um, and therefore we don't see this as a long-term league. So the challenge then for an esports team is promoting the investment that's then needed to get behind the league itself, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, yeah, makes, yeah, that sense. makes sense. Yeah, because there's an awful lot of upfront investment that needs to be done to meaningfully, and that's the most important thing, support um a women's team especially when there's just not that historic um investment that's been there yeah and I guess I mean you know picking up on that point and the need for investment I understand that there's a huge uptick recently in female gamers and you know they are on the rise so just to throw a few stats out there in 2020 for example women accounted for nearly 41 percent of all gamers in the U.S. And I think in a report um, actually commissioned by Fanatic on equality in the gaming industry, it was noted that like 38% of the 1.3 billion Asian gaming population were female. Also, 1.3 billion is crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, these these are positive statistics, aren't they? And you'd have thought that, you know, investment should be on the rise for female gamers if, if there are more female gamers just out there generally. I, yeah. I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. 
Yeah, well, I would say there is definitely more and more investment, and Fnatic is super behind that as well. So it's something that's definitely happening and going to only increase, I would say. And there's inevitably going to be a, a delay so that the pipeline of female players at that competitive level can kind of get there in large numbers and hopefully we'll be in a position soon where we're not even talking about the difference between male and female players. Um, I think it's a, it's quite, it's a more recent statistic that the numbers have been quite as high and there are a range of reasons why more, a more diverse range of people are playing games, including yeah. games being produced that are of broader interest to a wider range of people. Um, technology advancements are making games more accessible and able to be played on mobile, for example. That's a huge accessibility kind of advantage, which is a point worth mentioning, actually. To be a professional esports player, historically, on a non-mobile title, you need, like, expensive kit and a really good internet connection, and that rules out a lot of people off off the bat, right? Um, It would rule out me, so... Yeah, Uh Another factor I think is that it's becoming increasingly apparent that it is a it's a career option for people. Um and yeah. we can talk to it more later, but both as a professional player, but also within the esports industry in, you know, legal roles or marketing roles or whatever mm-hmm. you happen to do. Like these are big um organizations that have a lot to offer from a career point of view. Um Unfortunately, there are also real challenges for women in gaming, whether that's as a player or in organisations. Um, just by virtue of the fact it is a more male-dominated industry, I think our equality report showed that female players and creators felt that there was a negative kind of stigma around being a female player. They weren't kind of yeah. taken seriously in the same way. This is all obviously really sad um and hopefully that's something which will change with there being kind of more role models of you know women working in these organizations and women succeeding at the top competitive levels yeah i mean i i guess i guess one aspect of that as well just looking at the actual games themselves you know you see a lot of male protagonists in games but you don't necessarily see a lot of female protagonists and and I wonder whether you know as as there are more female protagonists whether more females get into gaming or whether actually it's the opposite you know more females get into gaming and then therefore the creators start putting in more female protagonists yeah so it's I guess it's a bit of a chicken and egg scenario very much so um there are big moves like in terms of like culturally significant titles on this front. So obviously Grand Theft Auto has announced, well, you might be aware they've announced that there will be a lead female protagonist in the next um, iteration of that game. Um, okay. Historically, obviously you had to be, well, the female characters are, what are they, like prostitutes, strippers, yeah. um, extreme caricatures of feminists. So it, it's a process and it's there are there are very unfortunate stereotypes that need to be overcome absolutely and I think that will make a big difference seeing seeing women to be a role model women in game as well yeah to your point yeah 
Exactly. And I guess, um, you know, picking up on, on one example of a game I know, for example, The Last of Us, you know, that's been made into a HBO like hit TV series. And that's brought in a lot of new fans. And, you know, that originated from a game like even my mum loved The Last of Us and she's never picked up any sort of game <laughs> before, or <laughs> as far as I'm aware anyway. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I guess there's more there's more drive there and it makes you know, commercial sense, doesn't it? Well, it does. That, to that point, I mean, think of the huge increased talent pool you have for players and for yeah. fans as well if you just if you if you open up the space to to an entire gender in a more welcoming way yeah 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 um and now just like switching back to something that you mentioned earlier in terms of different roles within the gaming industry for for uh women you know uh, there seems to be quite a big disparity in other areas of gaming and the esports so picking up on a study that that i saw recently um, in 2020, of the top 14 global gaming companies, there was 84% of executive positions in the gaming industry that are actually held by men. And, you know, this lack of gender equality and, you know, at this decision making level of gaming and entertainment must have a trickle down effect in some respects. Absolutely, it must. Yeah. And it's it's worse than, as you say, most other media and entertainment industries isn't it it would be interesting to know how it compared to sport more generally um yeah. i suppose i've only ever myself worked well since coming to london in industry <laughs> that is sport and not don't kind of have the best track record on the, on those stats either um but i do think uh there are ways to remedy the situation so yeah. um fanatic is really focused on that and i can give you a few examples of what we've done um, particularly to just open esports as a option in people's mind for a future career. Um, I'm probably a good example. So I worked in sport, obviously, uh, but myself had not thought to work in esports and wouldn't really have even known where to start if I wanted to. I mm-hmm. ended my role at Fnatic because I was proactively approached by a connection, right? So if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have thought to seek it out. And so what we've done um, at Fnatic, we've held an we held an event quite recently actually on International Women's Day in association mm-hmm. with Women in Games International, and that was an invite to any woman interested in a career in esports to come into our offices. And we had little kind of roundtables set up with people from different parts of our business, from marketing to pro gaming to legal, um, people from our studios, department, sponsorships, et cetera, to just talk to what they do. Um, And it wasn't specifically about a particular career option or about it being esports necessarily. Even it was just like to raise awareness of the fact that these are, you know, quote unquote, normal jobs. Um, And this is a context in which you could get a job that you might not have thought of. Um, because you're not naturally, I don't think, unless you've been a gamer, thinking of esports as as a viable option. It's not. It's probably not on the on the cards at all in your mind. Similarly, we run a colleges partnership program where we partner with certain colleges in and around London who run BTEC esports courses, and we give them direct access to the expertise those students direct access to the expertise we have 
that fanatic. So I think that's that, that's a really meaningful way we're kind of reaching people at an early stage and, and opening up to yeah. the opportunities that there are. Um, <clears throat> we've also got this thing called a fanatic network, which is essentially like a streamer academy that we have where we um, strive to maintain a 50-50 gender split. So if you want to be kind of a public-facing uh, player in esports, there are two career routes. There's pro gaming, so being a professional player, or there's being a what's called a creator, which is you're often a very good gamer of in in some respect, but that's actually very much more so about your appeal and personality whilst you're okay. online streaming. Um, and yeah, like I say, we have an academy where we do really strive to have a 50-50 gender split called Fanatic Network, which is which is great. That is great. And um, picking up on something that I, I noted in your equality report, mm-hmm. you said that gaming industry won't become more equal, diverse and inclusive unless leading voices are prepared to do something about it. I wondered if you could just tell us a bit about what that could and should look like. Yeah, I think it's the types of initiative that I've just described. Um, So organizations in the space, whether that's esports teams like Fnatic or publishers like Riot, um, running grassroots kind of outreach and attracting people into the space. Um, And then obviously the launch of female leagues is a fantastic advancement. Um, and speaking out, I think, as well, and really yeah. taking a stand when you see things online that are unacceptable, because it's it's a challenging space online, particularly for women. Um, and that's a real challenge we have from a safeguarding perspective, because yeah. we're limited in actually what we can do with what is said and done online. Um, it's not within our walls, you know, um, in the same yeah. way as safeguarding concern uh might ordinarily be so it's really about helping our staff and players and creators and equipping them with the skills they need to be able to deal with it and speaking out against it when we see unacceptable behavior and I guess one aspect of that as well is education and you know getting getting in there at that grassroots or earlier stages just to just make people aware I guess and make females aware that this is an opportunity for them absolutely yeah well, I mean, they are, oh, we've exhausted all of my questions <laughs> for the moment. Um, I, I'm sure I'll have plenty more for you in future. Yeah. But um, my final question was just whether you had any particular points that you would like to see make, uh, you know, changed in the future, either in soon to be or, you know, maybe near distance, mm. whenever, really, in, in respect of uh, females in sports. Oh, yeah, just that there's more of them. Yeah, love that. Very simple. <laughs> Huge advocate for that. Yeah, yeah, more of them in every corner, whether it's um, professional competition or within the organisations kind of supporting the players. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I'd just like to round off um, by letting any of the listeners know that if they'd love to come on this podcast, please just reach out. And I will pick up next time for the next episode of WINS, a.k.a. Women in Sport. It's been great. Thank you for having me.